Welcome to this conversation. I'm your host, Teresa Keller, and my guest today is going to be talking about some events connected to Martin Luther King Day. His name is William Eisen, and William Eisen is a director at the PBS station in Knoxville, Tennessee, if I have that right. Welcome, William Eisen. Hey, thank you. Actually, I'm not at East Tennessee PBS anymore. Uh, I'm the director of the Black and Appalachia Project. Maybe three years ago, we became a freestanding organization. Did you? So. Well, you know, I always like to start off my interviews being very wrong about something. <laughs> it just kind of sets the stage. Yeah. So it, it sounds like that that was a growth opportunity for you to become independent with your Black and Appalachia series. Yeah, it certainly was. Like we still work with East Tennessee PBS, and uh, but we uh, had the opportunity to roll out into a freestanding research and support organization. Let's just talk about, I guess, your background. Uh -huh. Somehow you must have had video, TV kinds of experience. You don't just pop into a PBS station and they throw that job at you. So tell me about your background. I'd always been interested mainly in nature photography as a young person, as a teacher teenager and would rip and run around the counties out here in East Tennessee and kind of hone my photography skills by myself. But then I ended up going to MTSU, Middle Tennessee State University, for what they called at the time radio, television, and photography. And since that time in the 90s, uh, that's what I've did uh, as my career, mostly radio television and photography. And so I joined up with East Tennessee PBS maybe close to 13 years ago and started helping doing documentary work and editing and outreach uh, work there at East Tennessee PBS. Okay. I'm too curious. I want to know too much. We don't have a lot of time, but mm -hmm. what were your jobs in radio and television before you landed at PBS in Knoxville? Uh, and and my, my jobs at, at, at radio were uh, reading the news, uh, running, you know, playing music at commercial stations. and But we also uh, worked with Prometheus Radio Project across the, the country to help set up independent community-owned radio stations. Commercial television stations, I mostly did master control. And so we would run tapes, uh, you know, set satellite uh, signals. I don't even know if they do that still, but uh, we think they were the good old days, I think. So William Eisen, somehow still we've got a little gap to fill because from running master control, you don't become operator of an independent documentary producing organization. Where did you get the production, the writing, the video skill? Where did that come in? That I gathered that over time, mostly through the opportunity that I had working at East Tennessee PBS. But before that, I had always did uh, video and documentary projects on my own, whether it was for a small, you know, small nonprofits in the region or people doing social justice work. You know, if it's, a, uh, I think, the, the immigrant rights uh, marches and stuff that happened in, in the early 2000s in East Tennessee at the time. And that was when you would have a big VHS camcorder. Kind of learned on my own just doing, because I was interested in photography and video, how to edit on my own. Really working at East Tennessee PBS, I learned how to hone my skills down into this documentary format, very PBS-based format. And so I really appreciate the, the work that I did with them because I learned a lot and how to do things and how not to do things. 
Well, you've obviously learned enough and had enough experience that you're a guest speaker here in Abingdon this Thursday when we record this or when this airs, we should be saying tomorrow because this is going to air Wednesday and on Thursday, January the 11th, you're going to be at St. Thomas Episcopal Church that evening to do a presentation. And what what are you going to talk about in that presentation? Yeah, yeah so it's, it's, it's MLK Day. It's Martin Luther King Jr. Day. You know, I'll probably focus primarily on the region, uh, southwestern Virginia and uh, northeast Tennessee. Since it's Martin Luther King Jr. Day, like I'm going to try to frame the work and the talk around previous uh, movements for equality in the region. The abolitionist movement was really big in the Appalachian Mountains. I'm going to talk about that, but also uh, some of the contradictions in our region uh, as a region that, you know, we're mostly understand that slavery didn't exist in as very much in our region, but it did, and it did exist in Washington County, Virginia. And even out of that, you know, Black communities begin to establish their own schools and churches and cemeteries and their social infrastructure after that, uh, after national emancipation. And so I think I'm going to talk kind of uh, about the long arc, social movements, the striving for freedom for Black communities in in Southwest Virginia and Northeast Tennessee. but also like those contradictions in, in our narrative. You know, we were a slaveholding region, but we're also known for abolitionism. Where those contradictions meet, I think, are where some of the really interesting stories are from our region. So you grew up in Knoxville. I grew up in Hamblin County, Tennessee, uh, which is uh, in northeast Tennessee. Uh, Morristown is the county seat, but I grew up out in Hamblin County. That's where we're based at right now. So what experience do you have with being Black in Appalachia? Yeah, so my folks are from this area. We've been here for a while. East of here, northeast of here is where we were enslaved at. My family was enslaved at. And about five miles the other way is the cemetery where I'll be buried at. We came out of Gate City, Virginia, out of enslavement there as well. And so we've been in, on this landscape since uh, since at least 1795, you know, my grandparents lived here. My great grandparents lived here and farmed. And so uh, this is this is home. You know, William Isom involved with the Black and Appalachia video television series that airs on PBS. I, I interviewed a woman one time, uh, a white woman who had discovered that her family owned slaves. What that had done to her, it blew her mind, it tore her apart. I'm wondering what it's like from your perspective, to be wandering around the territory where your ancestors were enslaved. It, it provides me with, you know, kind of daily perspective about what's really important and how, you know, people survive these things and how people move on and continue to build regardless of. In Northeast Tennessee, well, in Southwest Virginia and Eastern Kentucky as well, we celebrate the 8th of August as Emancipation Day. That's our region's Emancipation Day. And people celebrated that from emancipation on through uh, the dismantling of Reconstruction, on through uh, Jim, the Jim Crow era, on through the Great Migration till today. And I think in that, seeing that expression of, of celebration, you know, people were celebrating freedom even in the midst of not being free. People couldn't vote, people couldn't own land. Uh, they faced racial terror uh, in our region. And so 
uh, even forcible uh, ethnic cleansings and racial expulsions that ha happened in our region. But people were continuing to celebrate the hope for freedom, living where in a space where my folks were formerly enslaved and sharecropped and lived and worked and loved and had families. Uh, it provides me with kind of a daily perspective on, on where we're at in this point in history. Well, Martin Luther King's dream is uh, still in progress. What do you see as the issues today that we really need to be working on? And what hope do you have that we'll actually fix them? Hmm. Yeah, that, that's a big question. There's, uh, uh, in doing my work day to day, the, the, the thing that's most glaring for me that I see is after desegregation, uh, our Black communities and our Black infrastructure uh, began to be abandoned. There was no more need for for a lot of these these buildings and infrastructure and spaces and places where people had to live uh, during Jim Crow segregation. Uh, these schools were abandoned. Our businesses were abandoned. Uh, oftentimes, urban removal policies. Then we see like the rise of public housing out of that, and so people were removed from their land, given public housing. The Tennessee Valley Authority come in and remove people from the river valleys. The thing that I see right now uh, coming out of desegregation that, you know, desegregate, and I think we have to talk, try to figure out how to address it together, all of us, is the, you know, the, the abandonment of, of Black infrastructure because of desegregation. And so we all agree that desegregation had to occur, but we I don't think we fully understood what the impacts were going to be on the black community and its economy. We have to kind of roll up our sleeves and get to work on trying to grab together these pieces that are left on our landscape. I saw that Glade Springs School uh, in, in Washington County just got a, a state historical marker, which I think is amazing. Like that's an old black Rosenwald school that was converted into a community center. In, there in Washington County, and now there's a historical marker. So I think like these little things that we can all do together to help preserve and maintain what's left of the Black communities on the landscape, I think that that is something that was abandoned by the generation before me, the generation that lived through Jim Crow and lived through desegregation. That's the generation where all these things that were built up over, you know, 120 years begin to be left. And I think we have a responsibility now to try to trying to hold that stuff together. You know, I certainly hear the sentiment and can understand the significance of what you're saying, but in terms of specifics and particulars, I'm having a hard time. What mm -hmm. specifically do you see in your mind when you want infrastructure improved? You want restoration of schools, you want historical markers. What do you do about homes and businesses that just were owned and run by black people that are now just gone? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I see that we have, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but I, that I can't do or I can't even see. You know, I think the next generation after me is going to have uh, a lot more ideas. I think for me and what I see is there is an issue with heirs property. Uh, there's an issue of, of Black land that's been abandoned by families and left on the landscape. Like, how can we make it feasible for these families or even new families that are re migrating back down south, you know, two generations after their family migrated up north, how can we encourage re-engagement with those those heirs properties and how can we provide 
mechanisms for family to families to be able to understand tax structures. I'm talking about land trust, uh, you know, you know, access to land trusts and and all these mechanisms that will allow people to maintain and hold on to heirs property. And I think that that's a that's a component that can also feed into the restoration and preservation of these old schools and old buildings, old mason lodges, old elks lodges and things like that that are kind of abandoned on the landscape. My guest today is William Isom. He works with the Black in Appalachia documentary program. And this Thursday, tomorrow, when you're hearing this over the air, he will be making a presentation in Abingdon at St. Thomas Episcopal Church in the evening with the topic of actually our local history. William, do you know what time your presentation is Thursday night? 6 p.m. Thursday at 6 Mm p.m. So I hope that people will be interested in attending and listening to you more. You know, before I just reintroduced you, I had asked a question about the major issues that you see today. And I have to say, it surprised me that you're Mm -hmm. talking in terms, I guess this is the way you see things historically in terms of land, in terms of individual stories, in terms of ancestry and in this region and those kind of things. You know, what I kind of expected was the big issues, like how the national narrative, there are efforts to snuff out the truth about slavery and to pretend that slavery was an opportunity for Black people to not have any white kids have to confront the truth. What are your thoughts about those issues? Those have and will always come up. Like there's always going to be a regressive part of our society that that ebbs and flows. And so I think from my perspective and for our work here is to act pro, to move proactively, regardless of what the repressive elements are doing not in a in a way to to avoid those repressive elements, but to to just overwhelm those repress, repressive elements with with information that can't be n- denied. Where we're at, particularly in this region, we have a lot of makeup work. The very base fundamental work to do in regards to Black narratives and Black history here. Black families can't go to their local repositories and research their families, and so we can't even in many communities can barely prove that we were even on the landscape. We have a lot of making up to do, and this is the work that we do, is this very based, fundamental primary foundation so that all these other things can occur out of. Uh, We don't know unless we have the data and the information about what what Black life is on the landscape so that social justice movements can take some of this information and move forward with it, such as the information about uh, racial atrocities and lynchings that have occurred in the region. You know, people can take the information that we research and produce and then move forward to, say, in Bristol, Virginia, they're they're working to memorialize the lynching of Robert Clark that occurred there in 1891. The information we produce, we don't do genealogical work, but we do, we produce the tools that genealogists can use to help tell these stories. And so that's kind of how we view our role. I want to dig in just one little bit more on the what you describe as repressive elements. And you're so optimistic. You're so boots on the ground. You've got the vision of where you want your work to be. I just want to know how you find hope because it's so depressing to me to see how the repressive elements, as you call them, the negative elements, the racist elements in our country, just seem to be growing. How do you find hope and stay positive? Yeah, that's uh, that is an easy question to answer. Is uh, working with uh, young people, working with these these uh, high school students and early college students. Like those are the 
people, that's where I get my hope from because seeing them uh, grab a component of this research and run with it and get really excited about their own community's history. The young people figuring out weird stuff to do that we would never even think of uh, to help like get this these narratives out. That That's what gives me hope. Well, I love your optimism. I, I tend to uh, move toward gloom and doom sometimes, but it's always inspiring to see somebody like you working so directly and trying to make things better. Let's talk just a little bit more about what you described as the contradictions here in this area. At the same time, this was a an area of slave ownership. You talked about lynchings. We know the history of, you know, Black people couldn't do this and couldn't do that and couldn't go to school with white kids and all that kind of stuff. Tell us more about the history of our very immediate region here that you know so much about, but the Washington County, Southwest Virginia area. Yeah, to be honest, I don't know a ton about Washington County. I know some. The Washington County Historical Society has actually did a really good job about engaging around the Black history there. It doesn't always happen in counties. So I think that, that they do a really good job. I'd like to shout them out. But, I, you know, we're Appalachia. This part of Appalachia is known for its abolitionist movement that, that sprung up here very early. I think in the 1830s, the first uh, abolitionist organization dedicated primarily to immediate emancipation of enslaved people uh, sprung up in what would be uh, Unicoi County, Tennessee. Ironically enough, uh, outside of Irwin, I think in 1831, there was a Kennedy man and uh, several other neighbors that, that started the first abolitionist organization. You and, are uh, speaking ironically because the Ku Klux Klan was also formed down in that, close to that area as well. Yeah, well, the Ku Klux Klan was formed in, in Pulaski, Tennessee, uh, which is Giles County, or, around that same time. And there were, and these are those contradictions we talk of because uh, right after the Civil War, the, the Ku Klux Klan really got got moving. And there were lots of Klan-like entities in Southwest Virginia and Eastern Ken Tennessee. And certainly, certainly more so than anywhere, uh, Eastern Kentucky had a huge Klan population. And so right after emancipation, you had... Uh, all these this this movement of people in and out of the region. But let me let me back up a little bit uh, to talk about the kind of the contradictions in regards to abolitionist movement here in the region. It was huge. There was a lot of Quakers. Uh, the Presbyterians oftentimes were, were had more abolitionist bent, especially the, those educated Presbyterians. But at the same time, some of these abolitionists were slaveholders. Some of these these people that pressed for in 1845, there was an opportunity to to ban slavery in the state of Tennessee, which almost won the state constitution to be put in the state constitution, but it was stopped. The arguments for abolition, you think, okay, abolitionism in the region, that that's a really good thing. And you know, these were really good people. But some of the arguments for abolition was the argument for the complete removal of black people from the region to send people to Liberia uh, to recolonize black folks somewhere else outside of the state. And so that's that's some of these contradictions. People were arguing against slavery and the evils of slavery, but they were also uh, arguing for the removal of black people from um, this region as well. So uh, 
Yeah, we'll free you and you will go away and disappear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so those those are some of those those uh contradictions that that we like to talk about. And you know, in Southwest Virginia, there weren't very many, you know, the black populations have always been uh, you know, at at the height, you know, and maybe about uh eight or ten percent in some counties, but the the disproportionate population. Uh, the disproportionate amount of, of lynchings that occurred in Southwest Virginia, uh, when you look at the size of the population, uh, those those racial atrocities that occurred, you know, there was, uh, you know, in, in all the counties surrounding Washington County, there, there was some kind of lynching that had occurred. And then if you expand out to include Buchanan and Tazewell counties of Virginia, McDowell and Mercer counties of West Virginia, that's, you know, that's like 20, 27 lynchings that occurred from you know 1889 to 1927 at least and so that's no that's no small amount you know wise county had uh what was it i guess four lynchings or three let's see three lynchings that occurred in wise county virginia and so all the all the counties surrounding uh washington county had some kind of atrocity that occurred that we know of uh, I want to ask you this question, uh, William Ice. I mean, these stories, when we're talking about slavery, when we're talking about lynching, and that seems so uh, long ago and so not connected to our reality. But as a Black man, I'm wondering if in your life you have had to confront racism. Oh, certainly. Uh, living in the United States of America, um, yeah, I mean, you 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 run into it, but also I'm very light skinned, and so sometimes I I get I don't get the the racism that people of darker skin might get. Uh, I can I can kind of slip in and out of places without people noticing. But certainly I've experienced racism in my lifetime here. What would be an example? I'm thinking you're so bright, you're so engaged and stuff. Mm -hmm. One of the racial stereotypes is to not expect so much intellectually of mm -hmm. black people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know about any particular instances. Um, nah. nah, I don't want to. You're not going to go there? No, nah, no. Nah. See, look at you. You are so positive and so hopeful. And, you know, it's, it's really sinking into me. I think I'm beginning to get what you're saying is that we've got to start with marking the history, marking the locations, marking where things happened, where Black people were, as you say, I mean, you take a people and you enslave them and control them, and still they rise, to quote a poet, and create and make music and make art and and hold the building of the country on their shoulders. Yeah, you don't have a choice. You know, you could woe is me yourself to death, uh, but there's work to be done. There's work to be done. Oh, boy. Does that just kind of sum up uh, the philosophy and the life of my guest today, William Isom, who is director of the Black and Appalachia Project that grew from uh, something he was doing at PBS. Let me have you just clarify your title and just describe what your project is as we are winding up. Yeah, uh, uh, I'm the director of Black and Appalachia, which is a, a nonprofit organization based here in uh Whitesburg, Tennessee, and uh, we we do research, education, and support. Uh, we we research black narratives across the Mountain South. 
we say the Mountain South, but we also work in everywhere from Pittsburgh down to Birmingham, Alabama, which are also uh, Appalachian areas. Um, and we do short documentary film production. We do census data work. We do we have a bookstore and research room here in Whitesburg. Um, so we do everything we can to kind of and uh, I guess I don't know if this is a, a, a corny analogy, but we do everything we can to kind of grab the scraps of, of black history across the region and quilt them together into something that might be useful for folks with roots in and through the region. You know, we've given such little attention to the actual specific work that you do. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that you have several videos. I'm wondering if it's possible to find them. One that I would like to mention and ask about is called The Swift Story uh, about an African-American university. Is that a video that people can see? And what is that story? Yeah, uh, we, we all of our videos are freely available on YouTube or you can uh, pick around on our website and find find oral histories and videos. The, the Swift story was one of the was actually the first film that we produced under Black and Appalachia and East Tennessee PBS. And it's the story of uh, a historically black college that was established in Rogersville, Tennessee, in Hawkins County, Tennessee. And it was established because uh, the state of Tennessee uh, made the, the, the integrated teaching at private colleges illegal. And so Maryville College, which had an integrated, uh, was an integrated school at the time, took a part of their endowment, gave it to William Franklin, Dr. William Franklin, and he came to Rogersville and built a black college for, for students to use all across the region. And so that that college operated, I think, until 1955. Uh, it's been a while since I made that film, so I might have my numbers fuzzy, but um yeah, the, the the Swift story details the the narrative of Swift College and how it became to be. And this video, these videos are available on YouTube, you say. Uh, I guess the search would be for Black in Appalachia. Yeah, you can uh, go to Black in Appalachia. You can also go to our website and there's a, there's a social media bar there and you can click on, uh, it'll have one for YouTube. So you can click on the YouTube button and it'll take you to our channel. You can see all of our films and oral histories. There's also, we're also on Instagram and TikTok and Facebook as well. And that would be black and Appalachia dot something. Uh, black and Appalachia, just that under everything. Yeah. Okay. Black and Appalachia, just Google that and you'll find it. Um, William Eisen coming to Abingdon Thursday for a presentation. We'll end with those details. But first, uh, I'd like to mention some of the other events because this interview will also air after his presentation. But on uh, Saturday, January the 13th, there will be the annual APEC Martin Luther King March that begins at 1.30 at Charles Wesley Church on to Abingdon United Methodist Church. And then coming up on Monday, at Emory and Henry College, January the 15th, Martin Luther King Day, a, co a convocation that morning at 9.30, Justice Takes Courage, featuring Betty Mae Fikes, who is known as the voice of Selma for her work on the front lines of uh, civil action, uh, for civil rights action. And again, finally, uh, William Eisen, my uh, interesting, fascinating guest today about his presentation Thursday night, January the 11th, St. Thomas Episcopal Church at six o'clock, and you will be talking about uh, Black life in Southwest Virginia. 
Black Life in Southwest Virginia. Thank you so much, Mr. Eisen. What a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. Thanks for having me, Teresa. And thanks to the listeners for tuning in to WEHC 90.7, Wednesdays at 6, Sundays at 2, this conversation, or Google us. Go to your podcast site, say WEHC, this conversation podcast, and you'll have more stuff than you can listen to in a year. Thank you once again, everybody, and we'll see you next time here on the radio.